I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at the first half of the chapter there. As we're coming uh, closer and closer to the close of this sermon series, I'm just um, really thankful. I, I, I can't think of a better letter we could have spent all these months of 2020 and all the difficulties, trials, confusion, uh, weakness that we have been in um, Second Corinthians. What a provision of God's sovereign grace and kindness to us. So I invite you, please follow along with me. You'll want to this morning because there's uh, quite a series of events that are uh, unpacked for us in this passage. You'll want to follow along, pay attention to the words with me. In the last few weeks, Paul has set up an argument for the foolishness of boasting in the works of the flesh. And really that boasting is what the the false teachers in Corinth have engaged in as they've made their way into the Corinthian church. And so this morning's uh, passage, Paul's argument rises to a climax with the words of Jesus by which Paul himself is comforted in his own weakness and suffering. Jesus's words, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10 together. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Lord Jesus, we confess our need for you this morning. Our need is absolute. We do not need you to make up the difference. We do not need you to cover some measurable gap. We simply need all of who you are, all of the grace that is in Christ and his gospel, that alone is sufficient. I pray that you would tutor our hearts this morning, teach us this by your word in the midst of the congregation this morning. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Second Corinthians. Who would have thought that yet again we'd be talking about boasting Again, if you look at verse 5, it gives us a little bit of perspective on some of the boasting. 
On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Paul begins to introduce the main idea of the section, which is boasting in weakness, okay? We can't underestimate the power of this argument. Don't underestimate it. My guess is you already have, because you and I are familiar with this argument. We are familiar with the idea of boasting in weakness because the Lord has made great there. We've heard that before. But let that familiarity not erase the shocking reality of what Jesus says in this passage. Let us not forget that that when Peter himself was being confronted by Jesus' own boasting in his own weakness that he would suffer, that Jesus' betrayal, his suffering, his rejection, his crucifixion, when Jesus begins to speak of these things, Peter rebukes him. That's how shocking it is. And then Jesus goes on to rebuke Peter in return and says this, Mark 8, 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's shocking. It's counter-cultural. It's counter the flesh. So Paul's boast is not in himself. Paul's boast is in the upside-down way that the Lord's grace to the believer to show his power and his glory in the midst of loss. This is the way of our God. This is the way of the Christ, and he's our master. Verse 6 tells us a little more. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. He's concerned about that. He doesn't want to be a fool here. I should not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me and hears from me. Paul does not want to boast except in what is actually true. And he knows that what is actually true is he has nothing that the Lord has not given because the Lord is the sovereign one of grace and power. Now, there are two aspects to a truthful boast or a boast that is not foolish. The two aspects of a boast that is not foolish and truthful is, first of all, that it's the Lord that's done this. A true, non-foolish boast is a boast that is in the Lord and the the truth of what he has done in the world. And secondly, a truthful, non-foolish boast is what is actually, visibly, verifiably true in the midst of the congregation. That's why he speaks of this in verse 6. So whatever he sees in me and hears from me. Of that, we can talk about. We can talk about what you hear from me and see in me is actually that of a true, verifiable gospel minister. All right? He's not afraid to talk about that. He wants them to see what is actually true. Paul is inviting the church to measure him, to consider the legitimacy of his calling. But they ought to evaluate the legitimacy and the genuineness of gospel ministers, not on the basis of their lofty claims, not of their status and honor in the community, but on their observable faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you've seen in me and heard from me, he says. The culture of the city of Corinth was to try to evaluate yourself based on your status in the community, your honor and your prestige. That's what would would vindicate and elevate 
the false teachers. But Paul's boast is in his weakness, and that confronts the false teachers. And it really, it confronts the culture as a whole. The church appears to be too easily impressed by the claims of the false teachers that aren't verifiable about lofty things and their status in the community. And Paul's obliterating that boast in the way that he goes about this passage. Now, what he does is he enters into uh, the telling of two narratives, two stories that have happened during the course of his life. The first is the third heaven. He compares and contrasts the third heaven and a thorn in the flesh. Look at verse 2. It speaks of this third heaven. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. I know a man. I have a friend, <laughs> right? He doesn't even want to admit it's him. He doesn't want to enter into a fool's boast, but he needs to tell this story to make a comparison and to draw out a point. He's concerned for the foolish boast. He doesn't want the Corinthians to misunderstand what he's about to share. He doesn't want to boast in his great experience. He he isn't actually sharing about himself at all. So he actually takes himself out of the story for a moment. What he's sharing about, and it's not himself, not his great revelation. He's sharing about the grace and power of God. And he wants to make sure that that's what they hear. And so he veils what he's sharing by speaking about it as though it was someone else. So he, I have a friend, right? I knew a man. But then in verse 6, it's clear that he's actually talking about himself. His boast is he could very easily boast in these very revelations and these glorious visions. Verse 2 tells us really what this passage is about. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, listen to these words, was caught up. It's the passive In fact, it's the divine passive. It's a way of speaking that happens many times throughout Scripture. You could expect to hear, by whom were you caught up? And when it's put like this over and over again through the Scriptures, it is the divine who has done the work. He is the divine actor. Paul, even as he makes the boast about his experience in the third heaven wants to make it clear that it's the Lord who is the divine actor. He's telling a story about God. He references the Lord who knows throughout the whole of the passage. The emphasis is on the Lord. So, let's ask the question, what is the third heaven? Well, I can answer that real quick. I don't know. And it doesn't matter. I don't know. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't even seem that Paul knows or at least cares to tell us anything at all about it. Last night when Sandy and I were talking about this, I asked her, uh, what does Paul tell us about the third heaven? And her answer was, well, did he write a book about it? And the answer is no. In fact, he tells us almost nothing about it even when he does talk 
about it. He even tries to veil the fact that he's talking about his own experience. Clearly, he isn't sharing this revelation with us to tell us something about the revelation itself or something about he himself. The most detail we get is that he heard things about which he cannot speak. There's the great revelation about the third heaven. He's making a point. The point isn't about the revelation, and the point isn't about Paul. The point is whether or not, the point isn't whether or not we could pass a pop quiz on the amazing and glorious things that happened to the apostle Paul. The point is he's going to have to make another story. He's going to have to compare and contrast this experience in the third heaven with another experience that he explains regarding the thorn in the flesh. The point is going to be found in a comparison there. Now, there's a caution for us before we move on to the thorn in the flesh. The Apostle Paul, at various times in history, has been heralded as the model mystic. All right? He's been held up as an example that all believers should seek such mystical experiences of things like the third heaven, like he has had. So much so that people have claimed similar experiences, and they have made books about them, and their name is on the cover. But if anything, Paul seems to be making exactly the opposite point. I would agree. Paul is the model mystic. He doesn't rejoice in any of his visions or in any of his revelations. Not in themselves. Rather, Paul's point and example is the joy and gladness that is bound up solely in seeing, knowing, and experiencing the grace of God. Friends, that's the model mystic. The one who wants to know God in his grace and gospel. So let's go on to see more of the story, the comparison and contrast that begins in verse 7 regarding a thorn in the flesh. Verse 7, so to keep me, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, I've already asked you, what is the third heaven? Now, I would ask you, what is the thorn in the flesh? Let me answer again. I don't know. And it doesn't matter. It's not what Paul is talking about here. It's not what he goes into detail regarding. There's a number of guesses as to what the thorn in the flesh is. Probably a personal sickness or perhaps the ongoing persecutions that he experiences from place to place. To be honest, the things that we do know about Paul, it's take your pick of sufferings or weaknesses. They abound in the story of the Apostle Paul recorded for us in the book of Acts. It seems that it's a visible enough illness or weakness that the Corinthian church could see it and deem him to be weak because of it. So that when the false teachers come in, they can puff themselves up with pride, things about their mystical experiences and their strength in the flesh. 
and make light of the Apostle Paul. The, specific, the specifics of the weaknesses or persecutions or medical diagnosis of this illness is, is clearly, though, not Paul's main concern in bringing it up. As, as one commentator, Ulrich Heichel, argues, he, he says the point, Paul's point is that he knows the origin, he knows the cause, Paul's great revelations, and he knows its purpose, which is humility. The origin is that it's given by God. He knows the cause, which is the great revelations, and he knows its purpose, which is his own humility. Paul could boast about his surpassingly great revelations, but they're not observable about him. They're just his claims. They're just what he could boast about. But instead, if he's going to boast, he'll boast in his weakness, which is easily known about him. Again, Paul is a model. He's the model mystic because he celebrates the grace of God. And he's the model sufferer, not because we ought to seek to suffer like he suffered any more than we would seek to go to the third heaven like he went. He's the model sufferer because he doesn't rejoice in suffering or in weakness in and of itself, but in the grace of God that he has come to know in the midst of weakness and suffering. Now, it's interesting. We actually know quite a bit of detail about the thorn, things that he does want us to know. We know eight things from the passage about this thorn in the flesh. We're told in verse 7 that it is because of the greatness of the revelations that it was given. We know it's given by God because of the divine passive and many other things. We know it's given in the flesh. I would encourage you to pause there for a moment and note the relationship between the spiritual and the physical. God will use the body to humble the spirit. God will use the body to tutor our faithfulness in the spirit. Fourth, we know it comes in the form of a messenger of Satan. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. What an interesting phrase. But we know also that the purpose is to keep, fifthly, Paul from being conceited. Now think about this for a moment. This is another way we know it's from God. Would a messenger of Satan come and bring weakness and suffering to Paul in order to make sure that Paul doesn't become conceited? Or is that God leveraging the foolishness of even a messenger of Satan for his own divine purposes? It's God who's working in this passage. We know, sixthly, they pleaded for its removal. Three times he pleaded with the Lord. Seventh, instead of removal, the Lord gave grace. Pause there. Consider. I've been reminded numerous times during the course of the study in the last few weeks that the word grace is the word gift. Instead of removing suffering from Paul, God gave him a gift. He gave him grace. Eighth, it became for Paul, this is essential, a source 
for gladness. We know quite a bit about the thorn. Said if we come back to the messenger from Satan, hear this. Satan hates Paul. He sought to harass Paul. Satan hates every believer because Satan hates God and the things of God. A messenger of Satan who harasses is harassment. Just because God uses it for something else, it doesn't make it not harassment. Satan had no intention of humbling Paul. Satan uses pain to hurt the end. But listen to what Colossians 2.15 says. I would encourage you, write that down. Colossians 2.15, right there, by a messenger of Satan to harass. He that is the Lord disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Friends, this is just another example. What in the world can Satan do in a universe where his power has been utterly overcome, put to open shame, and triumphed over? He has been put to shame. If Satan ever had any power in all of history, it was the power to condemn sinners. He is the accuser. But the Son of Man has been condemned in our place. What in the world does he do now? He's been put out of a job. I was reminded, thinking about this, of the white witch in the book, uh, in the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia. She comes to Aslan, the Jesus figure in the book, and she demands the rights and power to the life of Edmund, the rebellious sinner in the book. She demands her rights and the exercise of her power. Aslan concedes to the witch that she has a right and power over Edmund. But he reminds her of the deep magic, the eternal law. He reminds her that an innocent one may be given in the place of a rebel. And he reminds her that such a sacrifice cancels the power of judgment and death. And so Aslan offers himself. Friends, this is the story of redemption. Satan, the accuser, has the right to condemn sinners, to accuse and cast Blame upon them. But the Lord, the righteous one, has taken our condemnation in our place. Our sin was put on Jesus on the cross. And in so doing, for all who place their faith in him, the power of Satan has been utterly used up and destroyed. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. What's Satan going to do? Well, he tries out a thorn. What about a thorn in the flesh? Let's give that a try. And he fits and he rages. And it turns out he's just tying himself in knots. And the Lord uses that for good too. 
His messengers go about prowling like a lion, biting like a snake, but they have no power that the Lord himself has not already overcome for the good of those who love him. Stick a thorn in the side of my servant, the Lord says. I'll just use it to humble him. And that very thorn will become the playground for the exercise of my grace and power in his life, in the life of everyone who's read this ever since. Friends, you want to know what it looks like to be triumphed over and be put to open shame? Send a messenger to crush a servant of the Lord and then have that recorded in the scriptures where it actually just works for his humility. This is the open shame of Satan. What do both of these episodes have in common? Well, the point of Paul in making both of these stories isn't about him. It's not about revelations or thorns. It's not even about Satan. The point that Paul is making in both of these stories is the Lord is the sovereign. He has a purpose in glory and in weakness. And it's the Lord's power, the Lord alone, whose power is on display. We have no power on our own, any more than a messenger of Satan himself has any power over the sovereign will of the Lord. If even a messenger of Satan can't pull something off, who do we think we are? So why ought we boast except in the Lord? Here's the fascinating thing about the vision and the thorn. They're actually twin gifts. They belong together. They actually have the same purpose. They have the same twin purpose of both giving Paul clarity on the glory, grace, and power of God. And then putting that on display for a watching world. It's really much like our twin confession that Matt leads us in so very often. The Lord is holy, and I'm a sinner in need of grace. These things belong together. And his power is made perfect in such drastic weakness as my own. Don't miss this. There is an incredible grace in this passage. It's a grace that comes in the form of quotation marks. We think the great revelation of the passage is the third heaven, whatever in the world that means. That's not the great revelation of this passage. The great grace of revelation in this passage is found in the second half of verse 9, or in verse 9. He, that is Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, that's revelation. That's not the sort of thing that we come up with. That's the revelation of Jesus himself. It's a gift. It is a grace that the Lord spoke those words to Paul, and Paul recorded it for us. Paul rejoices not because of his weakness, but in the presence of his weakness, Paul rejoices in the glory of the Lord that's made manifest in the presence of weakness and suffering. The emphasis is not upon the weakness when when Paul talks about the thorn, any more than it's on the strength when he talks about the third heaven. The emphasis and the point is God's grace and power. The point is also not simply to humble Paul. God is establishing his absolute 
power in the sufficiency of his grace. Ultimately, the thorn in the flesh does far more than humble Paul. It lifts him to the greater height of the glory of God's grace. You see, he's not just brought low, but being brought low, his vision is made high to see the glory of God in his grace. You thought that he saw God in the third heaven. Here he sees him in the cross and redemption. Friends, that's what you and I get to see. I want you to notice something. Notice where the thorn is. Look at verse 7. The thorn was given me in the flesh. It's in his body. It turns out that our bodies, our daily lives, our circumstances are a theater for the display of the power of God alone, alone, only. Our circumstances, our bodies, our flesh, our life is a theater for the destruction of the sense that we are powerful. And the glory and joy that the Lord is powerful and gracious. We may work, we may be faithful, we may be weak, we may experience strength or hardship, we may experiencing towering gifts or suffering trials, but it's the grace of the Lord alone that is sufficient. So let me ask you this. What do you want to see? Do you want to see our strength? Or do you want to see the Lord's power? What do you want to see? In the second half of verse 9, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If your power is here, he says, If your power, Lord God, is right here in the midst of my weak and suffering life, so be it. Oh, better than amen, gladly. I was listening to John Piper speak on this, and he pointed out that the word for gladly is hedeos, hedonism. The Apostle Paul is a hedonist for weakness if that's where the place that the Lord would display his power, so be it, gladly. I'll drink whatever the Lord serves all the way up if his power is displayed there. Verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There are two powerful takeaways for us. The first is this. The Lord is the divine actor. Listen again to verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn was given a messenger of Satan. Paul doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't have a problem with it. He doesn't have a problem with a variety of things happening in the world. He sees the grace and power of the Lord at work in revelation, in weaknesses, and even in the vain attempts of Satan to afflict the believer, to harass him. But note Paul's response to the thorn in the flesh. 
In verse 8, it says that he cried out to the Lord. We pray to the Lord in seasons of both glory and pain. But Paul's prayer gives context. We see that suffering is not the absence of grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that suffering is God withholding? Or do you believe with Paul that suffering can be right there in the midst of some of the Lord's greatest grace? Quite to the contrary, it may be the will of the Lord not to remove the suffering because by the grace and power of the sovereign Lord, our weakness becomes the playground where we get to see his grace at work to sustain and to demonstrate divine power. How do we do this? How do we walk as a people where the Lord is the divine power? Friends, we have to be trained in this. We have to see the Lord as the divine, the sovereign actor in history and in our lives. At any one moment, the work of a friend or an enemy, a simple circumstantial blessing or a messenger of Satan, the Lord has to be spoken as the one who is at work with the central purpose in all of these things that my grace is sufficient for you. Friends, this passage is filled with the revelation of the Lord's power and glory. But the greatest revelation isn't some third heaven. The greatest revelation is my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord is the divine actor. The sovereignty of God is central to our experience of grace and power. I have to pause there and say, did you hear it? There is a practice that needs to make its way into our daily life, that trains us to see that the Lord is sovereign, even if we don't even have the answers to the questions of what in the world is going on around us. Whether it was in the body or not, I don't know. The Lord knows, Paul says. But the Lord knows. He is the divine actor. Secondly, God's grace is divine power. Do we believe that grace is power? Scott Heffman, Paul's gospel does not come from his experience in heaven. He does not come with news of the great glories of the heavenly places and the angels and the singing and so on. Paul's gospel, the true good news comes from the history of redemption recorded in the scriptures. From early Christian tradition concerning the life, death, and resurrection of the Christ, and from his own encounter with the resurrected Christ on the Damascus road. Do you want to know the grace of God? Friends, I know this. I know that some of you are waiting For some great revelation from God. You've actually asked. You've literally prayed, Lord, if you're real, show up right here. The whole point of the gospel is the Lord has shown up. It's the incarnation. 
all the context of the history of redemption. He has shown up. He has revealed grace in the person and the work of the Christ in the cross and in the power of His resurrection. The Lord has shown up. He has revealed grace. And He's shown up in His Word with a revelation today. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you want to see the Lord, perhaps you need to begin by humbling yourself before his already present work, even in the midst of your suffering. How many times have I heard or even said, if only God would remove this suffering, then I would believe. First of all, it's not true. And secondly, it's the suffering that's humbling me to admit that he's the Lord and I'm not. Secondly, when faced with suffering, Scott Hiffman says what is needed is not more willpower, not the ability to will ourselves to be content in the midst of suffering. What is needed is the power of God's grace. You see, more willpower is more of me, but the great grace is more of God. We don't need more suffering nor more willpower. We need more Christ and a greater knowledge and humility before his gospel. We pray for help. We do. We pray for the divine power of God to release suffering. Pray to the Lord. But we also pray in the knowledge that the divine power of God so often works to strengthen the believer right in the midst of suffering. And so we cry out to the Lord. And we say, Lord, above all things, what I want is I want a sight of your grace. Let me see your grace. Let me remember your grace. And let me be honest, so very often such strength in weakness is a far more compelling display of God's power and glory in the church. It's a difficult one to pray for, but I pray that the people of Cross Point Coast Christ's church would become a playground for his visible grace. I just happen to know what that might mean. Not so be it. Gladly, Lord, tutor us in that grace. John Piper, who says things sometimes so well, the, the title of a commencement address in 2018, on this passage, he says, Your thorn for the shaming of Satan. Your thorn for the shaming of Satan. And he says this, Your pains and weaknesses are not obstacles to everything you want to accomplish, but the very instruments God uses to make you more like his son. What do you want? What do you want? To accomplish great things? Or to know the Son. Here in just a few verses, in chapter 13, verse 4, Paul will say, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. The gospel may not cause you to see great visions and glories of heaven. 
You will when the Lord returns. But the gospel has caused us to live with Christ right now in the flesh by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do we believe that that's good news, that that's gospel? I would encourage you with three things as I close. In suffering and weakness and glory, plead with the Lord. Plead with the Lord. Who else are you going to talk to in your weakness? Secondly, be pleased by the Lord. Find in His grace everything you need. And then thirdly, be content in the body. I I do want us to say, Lord, if this is where you would show your glory, more than so be it, gladly. I want Cross Point Coast to put on display the power of God. If weakness is his method, so be it. May his power and grace be on display in our midst, and we will be satisfied forever. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your triumph, your display, the open shame of the enemy. We have nothing to fear. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sufficiency. Thank you for the record of the scriptures that the Apostle Paul doesn't go off and have some Gnostic experience of greater things that we have to take his word for. But he simply brings testimony of something that was seen with many eyes and borne witness to by many witnesses, the resurrection of the Savior Jesus Christ. Cause us, Lord, to believe. And if we would believe, we would say, that was miracle. That was the grace of God at work in our midst. Thank you, Lord. Humble us by your grace to put your grace on display in power. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.